0: Um, what I'd like to discuss is some of the some of the more basic principles that underlie the Jewish approach to, to healing and to health and uh, try to find uh, try to illustrate for you a theme that runs through and links many subjects our attitude towards healing our attitude towards things like experimental medicine our attitude towards alternative medicine homeopathic, naturopathic and various other sorts of Um, various sorts of other medicines uh, how to handle certain extreme risk situations although that uh, we'll discuss more more fully elsewhere in another occasion as well but there's one theme here that underlies all of our thinking and before we study the specifics of whether it be cosmetic surgery or risky procedures in medicine or uh, triage, all of those areas there are some fundamental things to understand which are underlying all of our thinking on medical intervention and at a much broader level underlie our approach to life altogether in terms of the, the interaction between the spiritual and the physical. Let me try to, to explain this and show you how this theme plays itself out. And then I'll try to stop for questions. So let me, let me, uh, let me ask you to hold the questions first while I try to build a picture of this, of this area and then i will try to then i'll stop and i'll try to answer questions if i can <laughs> um, maybe a way to do it is like this you know how does the non jewish world approach what they call today medical ethics medical ethics means doesn't mean that you know this, this is an area of medicine where you're ethical and other areas you are unethical it doesn't mean that it means the area of medicine that is not the technical plumbing functions of medicine but rather the the value Yes, how to perform an abortion is technically one... The first patient I ever had in practice was a young girl who came in wanting an abortion. And I suddenly realized that the plumbing, you know, they taught me. But actually, the decision-making about whether this should or shouldn't be done, whether it's allowed or not allowed, good or bad, then no one ever taught me that. So, and at medical school in the secular world, they tried to teach you those principles in a relative way. In other words, how to weigh up the issues, weigh up the values look at different models of applying relative values, but there's no you're dealing with a relativistic system, and therefore there's no absolute guidance. There can be some very important insights, but there's no, there's no absolute guidance. And of course, in Torah, we're dealing with an absolute frame of reference. It doesn't mean that there's no work that has to be done in comparing values. On the contrary, it can be very difficult to work. But it's a completely different frame of mind when you have an external uh, reference point. So, how do, they, how do they approach it? So, modern medicine has come up with a set of criteria, and it's uh, perhaps not, not a bad place to start. Modern medicine has come up with a set of criteria that they apply whenever they have a difficult decision. Somebody's very elderly, and it's uh, doubtful whether they'll survive, and they're occupying a hospital bed, and someone else needs the bed, and it's very expensive to keep them going. And how do you weigh up all these types of their suffering on the one hand, there's suffering in the family, there's costs and, and uh, all sorts of issues. How do you weigh up these, these things? Modern medicine has a number of criteria, but there are four primary ones. I'd like to show you why they're all valid criteria, but they're all wrong from a Jewish point of view. They're right, yet they're wrong. Uh, they're ideas like this. The first one they usually quote is called autonomy. Autonomy means that it's, the, it's my life. It's my life. I'm autonomous. It's my life, and I'll do what I want. And therefore, the application of that is that in, in medical ethics and in, medical, in, in, in secular law, whether it's in this country, in Britain, or in the United States, or any other Western country, you are not allowed to do to the patient that which they do not consent to. Right? That's autonomy. I'll come back to this in a moment. The second principle they have is what's called justice. It must be, it must be right and fair. Justice means what is, what is right and fair in terms of, for example, one of the principles that would operate here would be what's just in terms of society. Is it just to keep a person on a machine where they're going to die anyway and someone else could use the machine and live? Okay, is that called justice? Second issue. The third they call beneficence. In other words, it's the doctor's duty to be to do good. Okay? You have to do the best you can for your patient. And the fourth is called non-maleficence, that you may not harm. Not only do you have an obligation to do good, you also must not do separate things. Though One does not imply the other, of course. You could be neutral and do neither. You have to not harm, and you have to do good. Okay? Now, these criteria are all fine within themselves. The debate becomes, I'm sure you can see what's, what the problem is. What is justice is a very moot point. What exactly is justice? To say what's just, you would have to have a system of weighing up the conflicting priorities in order to know what is just. Is one person's life worth more than many people's health? Those are all laden with spiritual values. Do you see the problem? It's all very well to say we must be just, but in very many situations, unless you've pr- already defined what are the criteria by which you're going to measure justice, you haven't said much. And of course, the biggest proof is that as the secular world evolves its thinking on these things, the law changes. And a classic example would be, let's take the next, let's take the next category, beneficence. Be doing good. What is called doing good for the patient? Well, two or three or four years ago in America, doing good meant saving life at all costs. Now, euthanasia is considered doing good, which means if the person reaches a certain situation, it could be better and kindlier to kill them than to save them. Which means that in the secular secular notion, it could be that what was actionable as homicide a few years ago is now considered meritorious as a (coughs) kindly act. Why? Because we voted it into effect. Do you see how completely contrary this would be to to Jewish thinking? You can't vote right or wrong. I mean, there are circumstances where you can. But in these areas, you certainly can't. And therefore, what's called good, and it's 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 not a a, a simple debate, it may be a good thing. You may genuinely make an argument that killing somebody who's suffering is, is... In South Africa, I remember, this must be about 20 years ago, a very dramatic example, was a person was tried for homicide because what happened was he came across a car accident Young man, right? And he came across a burning car and trapped in the car was someone burning to death. He couldn't get close enough to save the person, but he could get it close enough to shoot him in the head. So he put his gun through the window and he shot the person in the head so he wouldn't suffer the pain of being burned to death. And he was charged afterwards with homicide. Okay? Do you see that, that is not a simple matter. That's not a simple matter. He was so traumatized by seeing this person in the agony of actually burning to death, not being able to get out of the car, he was trapped, he couldn't get out, he thought that what he'd like in such a situation is somebody shoot him in the head rather than burn to death. Now, the question is, that's not an easy question to answer. Is that, is it culpable? Is it not culpable? Is it, Dr. Sanders, what sort of would happen in this country if you did that? Hmm? Complicated. Well, you know, so the question is, is that called beneficence? Is that called maleficence? How do you, how do you define that? A few years ago, killing somebody who was terminally ill in, in a coma, for example, was called harming. Not only that, it was called homicide. Today, it's called helping them because we've redefined that, right? Uh, Rabbi Shimshon Rafael Hirsch put it very beautifully. He said, In a democracy, the people make the law. In Torah, the law makes the people. You know, what's your starting point? Where do you, where do you start? Non maleficence, not harming a person. Well, what's called not harming the person? Right? It can get very, very complicated. And therefore, we don't have a problem with these criteria as criteria. We have a problem with what the definition is of the parameters that go into these criteria. Let me just make one or two remarks about some specifics. What about autonomy, for example? Autonomy means it's my life and I'll do what I want. Okay? In this country, you cannot perform a procedure on a patient without their consent. You can, in rare circumstances, do something for someone's benefit without consent if someone else can certify someone in authority, like parents, for example, in some circumstances, or next of kin, or in some circumstances a legally ba- valid authority, for example, a, a, a judge, or, or in, in South Africa even a um, hospital superintendent under certain circumstances, emergency circumstances, can sign for a dangerous procedure, provided that it's for the benefit of the patient. If someone's comatized and they need an emergency operation, there's no one else to, to ask, then the law will countenance authorizing that surgery, okay? even though there's a potential risk, because we assume that the person would have wanted that and there's no one else to authorize it, we'll do that. But it doesn't supersede the patient's autonomy. If they wake up and say, I don't want this operation, in every Western country, as far as I'm aware, certainly in this country, you dare not touch them. If you touch a person who says, don't touch me, right? in in, in, in secular law, you're in big trouble. In secular law, you can be tried for assault. A few, few years ago, It was a lady in Hadassah hospital, middle-aged, elderly lady. She had gangrene of a leg. Okay, gangrene of a leg. The doctors told her that if she doesn't have a leg amputated, she'll die of toxemia, she'll become toxic, and she'll, general infection, she'll die. The lady said, it's my leg, I'm dying with my leg. Okay, I'm not having my leg amputated. And there was a tremendous uproar in the hospital and actually spread out to the whole of Israel because the religious doctors tried to convince her to have an amputation. Not only that, they felt very strongly that she should be urged to have an amputation because it's better to live without a leg than to die. The secular doctors felt that you dare not interfere with a person who doesn't want that to be done. And of course, in religious law, although there's no question the correct move is to have your leg amputated, you cannot be forced. According to Torah law, we can't force you into something that's immediately painful or short-term risk. We can force you into something that has no risk. Okay? For example, if someone's bleeding to death. If someone's bleeding to death in Jewish law, and the person says, I don't want to be saved. You get the scenario? Here's somebody comes to the hospital they're bleeding. They say, I don't believe in blood transfusions. Okay, My religious principles. Don't touch me. Don't, don't even stop the bleeding, if they say, for example. In, in, in British law and in American law, you cannot touch the patient. If you touch them, you can be sued for assault. In Jewish law, you put a big fake sock in their mouth, and you sit on their head, and you <laughs> save their life. Okay, Because we don't believe that they have the autonomy to give away their lives. We don't believe it is your own life. Okay? Um, and therefore, we disagree with this principle most strenuously. We agree that you have a certain authority and a certain autonomy. You have to know where it is. In fact, what happened to that lady was she died. She would not give consent for the surgery and she died a few days later because she had gangrene and it became a generalized infection or to make toxic and she died. In, in, in Jewish law, that's, that's a tragedy. I mean, a, tra- a human tragedy anyway, of course, but in Jewish law, in, ha- in halacha, that is, <coughs> that's not the correct attitude. In Israel, the law that applies is secular law, right? Israeli law is a mixture of British and Turkish law, and it's voted into effect as, and, and changed as time goes by. It's not Torah law in, in these areas, and that is an issue. So, we don't understand that you have autonomy. Our concept is that your autonomy does not extend, although you have autonomous decision-making power in very many areas, and in halakha it has certain applications. One application would be, for example, I'll tell you where a child... A child could be a certain procedure could be done on a child, and it's not clear whether that procedure will be helpful or harmful. There's certain certain leeway in that case. The parents are given the autonomy over the child. The halacha gives the parents the ability to decide what's best for the child in certain circumstances. But that's only where there's no clear halachic parameters or, that already exist. If the halacha would say this child's life needs to be saved, and that'd be the correct procedure, the parents' opinion would be irrelevant. In a recent case in Britain, where there were Siamese twins that needed to be separated. And if they wouldn't be separated, they would both die. And if they would be separated, then only one would die during the separation. The other one might live. Okay? There there was at least one major halakhic authority who felt that, that the court here in Britain, the high court, was wrong to authorize surgery against the parents' wishes. You know what happened to a Catholic parents? And <coughs> they said, <coughs> we want, we want, nature, to ta- we want um, nature to take its course. <coughs> we don't want anything to be done it was clear that both children would die the court here authorized surgery restraining the parents and forced surgery on the kids against the parents wishes which ended up saving the one kid and directly killing the other okay there was at least, it was a lot of debate about it at least one major halachic authority in the united states held that the court this british court was wrong why because it was either way could have been acceptable halachically and in such a circumstance I'm not giving you all the details of the case. You need to go into the nature of the case there. In fact, the child who was sacrificed was extremely disadvantaged. it had very, very poor brain function. It was a respiratory failure. Basically, in many ways, it was considered, at least legally, like an appendage on the other child. I don't want to go into the details now. <coughs> but <coughs> that person felt that all, there was enough room to move halakhically that the parents should have had the final say. Of course, other rabbis disagreed. There are circumstances where you have auto- autonomy. Where you don't have autonomy is where your life's at stake and certainly somebody else's life. The only place where the law, as far as I'm aware in this country and America, agree is where parents opt that way for a child. The classic case that's been tested out in the American courts is a child whose parents have a religious belief prohibiting blood transfusion. You know, there's some Christian sects that will not accept blood. Okay? Based on the biblical issue that the life force is in the blood and you can't take blood from someone else as a transfusion. There's no such prohibition in Jewish law at all. the contrary, it's an obligation to give blood and to receive blood where it will be life-saving. <coughs> now, <coughs> If a child comes in the hospital and it needs a blood transfusion and there's no other way to save the child's life and the parents say sorry against our religious belief who holds final sway there is it the parents whose religious beliefs are being infringed with respect to their child or is it the state's interest, as it's put legally, in saving the life of the child? The American courts, and I believe in this country too, have consistently upheld what's called the state's interest in saving the life of the child. They will forcibly restrain the parents and save the child's life with the blood transfusion. They do not respect the parents' wishes, even their religious wishes, when it comes to the child the courts. They will respect the parents' wishes when it comes to their own life. And therefore, if an an individual, an adult says, don't save me, you're forbidden to touch them. In Jewish law, it's irrelevant what they say. You're obliged to save them. Okay? (coughs) All else being equal. There's a a wonderful buzz that illustrates this very beautifully. Let me try to explain this. David Ben Zimri was a a great halakhic authority, talking uh, a a number of centuries ago. He was perhaps the leading halakhic authority of his day. He lived in Egypt. (coughs) And he writes a very interesting thing. It's a, it's a key issue that doctors should always keep in front of their eyes because it illustrates the point very clearly. He wrote the following thing. Do you know that in Jewish law, testimony against yourself is inadmissible? Do you know that? You cannot testify against yourself in, in aloha. In America, the version, that, yeah, the version of this is called the Fifth Amendment. You know, the Fifth Amendment means you can't be required to testify against yourself. In Jewish law, not only can't you be required, you're not allowed to. In America, they can't make you say anything that can be used in evidence against you. If you wish, you can if you want to get up in court and confess and say you killed the person, you can do it. It's admissible. In Jewish law, even if you try, it's inadmissible. You cannot testify against yourself. Okay? We are so extreme about this principle. I'll explain why. We're so extreme about this principle, we'll even split testimony in two. For example, let's say a person gets up and says that he had an he had a, a immoral sexual relationship with someone else. Okay? Incriminating himself and the other party. We hear the testimony about the other party, we don't hear it about him. He's completely innocent, the other person's guilty. Why? There's a witness who said the other person did it. Either the same person, said he did it. No, that's inadmissible. <laughs> that's called palgina adibiru, we split the testimony. Do you understand? The component that you say about yourself is invalid. You cannot testify about yourself in Jewish law. What's the obvious reason? <coughs> Why not? Well, there's no, no, the, the, no there's, a, there's a prior reason. Why can't you testify about yourself? So, the, yeah, the say so, the source is saying, well, says like, it's because you're related to yourself. You can't testify against a relative. Why not? Vested interests, right? You, you, yeah? Got a vested interest. You may not be objective because the person's your wife. Right? You may, she's your wife, you're going to say in her favor. Or maybe you're going to say, <laughs> not in favor. I don't But <clears throat> the point is that you've got a vested interest, somebody's related to you. And therefore, so Adam Koriv Etzel a person is related to himself. Who's your closest relative, if not you? So you cannot testify, if you're going to have a vested interest of testifying about somebody else, surely you're going to have a vested interest in trying to speak for yourself, and therefore you can't testify for yourself. And that's clear, and that's a major principle in Jewish law. However, here comes the problem. If the case is a financial case, you can testify against yourself. You hear that? If the case is a capital or corporal case, meaning that the punishment here would be a death sentence or lashes, inadmissible, you can't testify. If the punishment here is going to be money, that means there'll be a fine to be paid, or there'll be a financial settlement against someone else, you're perfectly free to testify, with great pleasure, you can talk about yourself. So the Radbaz asks the obvious question. If the standard, the criterion here, is objectivity, then it should apply in both cases equally. If you're not considered to be objective when you testify about yourself in a punishment, in a situation where the consequence will be lashes that you'll undergo, or that there'll be a death sentence, you're not objective because it's you why should you be objective about your money there may be a fortune of money at stake who says you'll be objective about your money and if you want to tell me that a Jew is considered to be objective and reliable about his money then why shouldn't he be objective about any other matter do you have the problem answer answers a major principle he says this he says this when it comes to your body or your life those are not yours your body and your life are not yours you were born, you were given a body and a life opportunity you're given those as a gift, there's a divine trusteeship and you have to guard that who the heck are you to say you want to be lashed or killed, it's not yours you're here to protect your life and your body, do you understand it's not yours, you loan that for as long as you live, you have to take care of it and hand it back intact, and therefore a court case where the consequence will be lashes to your body or death to yourself that is not in your jurisdiction your money is in your jurisdiction, it's yours Hashem has given you money. He's given you full jurisdiction. You want to throw it away? You want to testify about yourself? You want to, you want to pay money? Pay! What's the problem? You want to get up in court and say you owe the other fellow 10,000 pounds? Go right ahead! Pay 10,000 pounds! It's yours! Do you hear the distinction? Not that you should waste your money. Talk about that. It's not responsible and it's not right. It is a transgression. You do need to look after your money and your possessions responsibly. But that's not the point. The point is that in your jurisdiction, you want to damage yourself financially. Morally right or wrong is another question. But it's in your jurisdiction. Is this clear? Your money is being given to you. Hashem gives you in the legal sense, He gives you ownership over that. But He never gives you dominion or ownership over your body. Or anyone else's body for that. Part. And therefore, you are not free to undertake that option. This is a very a beautiful key to remember that teaches this principle, clearly. And therefore we do not say that autonomy Now there might be examples again where the patient's decision comes into it. I'll give you a couple of yeah, I'll give you, let me give you two examples. Two examples. Not, again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that you don't have autonomy to make decisions. Of course you do. But you cannot override a divine obligation. That's all. But there are plenty of areas where there's plenty of room to move. I'll give you an example. Some time ago, a woman came to see me who had, di- had been diagnosed with breast cancer. Okay? She had breast cancer. She had growth, a lump in her breast, and they, she had it removed. She had surgery. And it turned out, immediately after the surgery, she had surgery and then discovered she was pregnant. Okay? So here's a 42-year-old woman. She's now just had surgery for breast cancer. And she is pregnant. She's two and a half months pregnant. That's a very precious pregnancy. She actually had one child from a previous marriage. She recently got married. She's now pregnant. Very, very doubtful she'll have another child again after that. And she wants to continue the pregnancy. The doctors tell her she must terminate the pregnancy and have chemotherapy. Okay? Okay? She must have chemotherapy because that will improve her survival chances and her life comes first. No one knows what chemotherapy in an early pregnancy will do. Right? There are very few studies on this. You can imagine very few people go around giving chemotherapy to pregnant ladies. So there's, very, there's not a really the large body of evidence about what the, pro- the probability is of the chemotherapy causing the child to be abnormal or terminating the pregnancy or what the consequences will be. In fact, there's not only that. There's also conflicting evidence about how it will help her. Some evidence is that a pregnancy has a negative effect on a cancer, yeah, yeah. and other evidence is that the hormonal status of a pregnancy might actually help. Different studies show different things. They're not, not a simple matter. So she came to me, she said like this, what should I do? The doctors tell me, terminate the pregnancy, don't risk harming this child, end the pregnancy now, and take chemotherapy. I am insisting on continuing this pregnancy. It's more precious to me than, than whatever this chemotherapy is going to do to me. If I'm going to leave the world, I want to leave a child behind. And... This is what I want to do. I want to continue the pregnancy. What should I do? What I want, yeah. So I researched it for her and I was in touch with some of the greatest experts in the world in this, in this field, in obstetrics and in, in oncology. And I was able to clarify the statistical, the, in her particular circumstances, the statistical um, probability of a survival, five-year survival with a chemotherapy and without it. And armed with those facts, I went to see two of the great Talachic authorities of this day. And one of them was Ravlyashev. And Rav Yashiv said to me, what are the figures? And I told him the figures like this, is that the, the surgical opinion was that her five-year survival rate, that means her percentage, her probability of surviving to five years and beyond, was about 80%. In her particular stage of disease, her five-year survival was about 80%. With chemotherapy, it's probably about 85%. Okay? Rav Yashiv said on the basis of those factors, she's fully entitled to continue the pregnancy. Why? Because that kind of difference... Okay, that kind of difference is fully within the ambit of her decision-making. If you think about it carefully, if you have any medical experience, you know that that sort of percentage difference probably is far more overweight yeah, by her mental status. That means, if this is a lady with a 5% worse chance, but doing what she you knows she ought to be doing, doing it positively, okay, any decent doctor knows that the mental status and the will is a very, very important part of the, of the survival parameters and if you take you batter this lady into a termination of pregnancy and give her chemotherapy, who's to say that isn't gonna be a worse do you understand? Who can weigh up those things? Certainly within the five percent leeway. And certainly when we're talking about a greater than fifty percent survival anyway, okay, and that's in fact what happened, she continued the pregnancy. What would have happened if the figures would have been less than fifty percent survival without the chemotherapy and greater than fifty percent with it would have been a different story. Okay? But in those circumstances there was the, the let me give you another example. Here's another example. One morning I walked into my house in, in Yerushalayim. It was very early in the morning. And I had a phone call from a hospital in the United States. certain part of the United States. There's a doctor on the line. doctor tells me like this. I'm standing at the bedside of a person who requires emergency surgery. This is a young man. He had an infection of a heart valve. Okay? Sudden acute infection of a heart valve. He, in fact... Um, in fact, he had an abnormal heart valve and he had some dental work. This is for the dentist. <coughs> he had some dental work and his heart valve got, uh, got infected and he was now an acute risk of his... You would never do that, right? Never do that. He was at now acute risk to his life and he had a bicuspid aortic valve and he now had an infection of his valve. It was late night where they were calling from. And a couple of hours time, early morning, they were going to wheel him into the theater and do an emergency replacement of his heart valve, which no- normally, under normal circumstances, should be completely solve the problem and save his life. What's the question? The question's like this. The cardiologist, who's this patient's cardiologist, one of the best in America, without any question I have to know him personally, is advising them to use a plastic valve. You know, the problem is that when you replace the aortic valve, you can use two different kinds of valve. The two most common valves are, one is a plastic valve, and one is a pig valve. Now, there's no halakhic problem with a pig valve, right? We're not talking about kashrut or anything like that. There's no problem. You can use a pig valve. The problem is that the plastic valve, the difficult choice you have to make in these cases is, which type of valve do you use? The plastic valve has an advantage that it lasts forever. Once it's, well, it's, normal, it's correctly implanted, it lasts for a lifetime. The downside is that in order to live with a plastic valve, you have to take blood-thinning medications. If you don't, the valve can clot and that can be disastrous. But taking blood thinners is not so simple. If you don't take enough, the valve can clot. If you take too much, you can bleed disastrously. Even if you take the right amount, if you have an accident or you, you get injured, you can also bleed very badly. So there's a lifelong risk okay, of having to take these medicines. On the other hand, if you use a pig valve, The advantage is they function absolutely normally like human valves. You never need to think about it. You never need to take a medication. It's absolutely fine. You don't have any of those risks. The problem is that about 10% of them need to be replaced in about 10 years. Can you see the the, the issue? So, like, which which is better? Is it better to live with this plastic valve and never need to have an operation again, but you've got the risk of all the medicine? Or, you have the pig valve, you don't have the risk of that, but in 10 years, and if you're a young person... You could even be talking about more than one re-operation, okay, in many years' time. What do you... Although the figures are getting better now, and probably it's a 20-year issue, and probably less than 10%, nevertheless, this is the issue. So the cardiologist said, look, in my opinion, we should use a plastic valve. Okay? Then they asked the surgeon, who's also a great expert, one of the best in America, who is going to be doing the operation himself. And he said, he's 100% right, let's use a plastic valve. And then, these two doctors which is a very wonderful thing, they're very humble, two very, very competent doctors, in their humility, decided to ask a third opinion. Why? Because they happened to be, to know an individual who's a very famous cardiologist. These are top people, okay? But this individual is like world famous. And since they had access to this individual, they thought, you don't waste an opportunity like that. Ask him what he thinks. And sure enough, he came to see the patient and he said, use a big valve. So you had two great experts saying use a plastic valve, and one expert whom they feel is greater than them saying use a pig valve. So they found me to say, what is the halakhic solution to this case? What holds more weight halakhically? A majority of competent opinion or a minority of superior opinion? You see the dilemma? That is not a simple matter. In halakha, in, halakhah, in halakhah, yeah, a majority is always very weighty. For example, the standard procedure halakhically is if two doctors differ we ask a third. You know that? that? If you ask two doctors, one doctor says surgery, one doctor says medicine, or one doctor says this kind of operation, another doctor says another, then the standard halachic competent experts, the standard halachic resolution is to ask a third, and all else being equal, we go with the majority opinion. Okay? So the majority has sway, it has importance. What holds sway? A majority of competent opinion, or a minority? So, what would you say? Not a simple matter, right? Baruch Hashem, I was able to get hold of Rabbi Yashiv immediately, it was a matter of minutes I was able to get hold of him immediately he solved the problem instantly, 20 minutes later I was back on the phone, and they resolved it, and Baruch Hashem, the patient did fine, and he's still fine, and everything was fine, now you want to know what he said? <laughs> I'll tell you what he said, Rabbi Yashif said the patient gets to choose choose whichever he wants okay, whichever he wants the majority is not relevant, and the senior opinion is not relevant in this case, those two are even enough that he gets to choose. I didn't have time to discuss it with him, but somebody very close to him who works with him all the time ventured an analysis of his decision, and I think it must be the correct one. And the correct, I think the analysis is like this, although I wouldn't be stubborn, you can argue about it, but I think the correct analysis is like this. We did not present Rahul with figures that gave a differential survival. Okay, In other words, do you understand? That means the majority opinion felt he'd be better off in the, with a plastic valve. The senior opinion was he'd be better off with a, with a, with a pig valve. None of them... Again, we didn't say to Radyashiv there's, there's an argument about his survival chances. Let me put it to you differently. Basically, what this decision boils down to is in both cases he's got a very good chance of surviving. In both cases he's got a risk. The question is which package of risks and benefits is the one to choose? All doctors agree that both are reasonable. That's why there are both operations. The only question is in which circumstances okay... In which circumstances, in an elderly person, usually a pig valve is chosen? Because it's unlikely a very old person is going to need a second operation. Do you understand? So the, the, the facts change with, the, with this. But if you're talking about a package of risks and benefits, and it's hard to decide which outweigh which, and there's no technical reason to favor the one over the other in terms of survival, let him choose. Let the patient choose what he feels. He's, it's a classic example of, not only is it because it's permitted, it's also sensible. The patient will do better... When he's motivated and he's chosen the course of action that he's committed to rather than when he's forced into something he doesn't want. And therefore, the healthy thing is why pontificate? Why issue a ruling halachically when it's not necessary? And therefore, the patient chooses, and in fact, that's what he chose. So he chose a plastic valve, and he said he was extremely happy that he did because the thought of going through all that again is. is uh, what if he can't choose? That's a very good question. That is a very good question. Let me think about that. It's too difficult for me, that question. <laughs> That's too difficult. Listen, your father's a surgeon, you ask him, okay? <laughs> Go back and ask your father, he's a very good surgeon, he'll know what to do. too difficult for me. Isn't there a possibility yeah. he could make, make a bad decision because he's not medically trained? No, the point here is not medical training. He takes advice, he's not medically trained, he takes medical advice. He's got absolute expert top opinion on both sides. He's a highly intelligent patient. And his job is, what do you favour? What do you want to live with? Okay? which package of risks and benefits are you going to be more motivated to handle it's fully competent to make that decision much better than any doctor if the doctors tell him you've got a better survival chance this way then we, start, then we start putting applying applying. I wouldn't say pressure but we, you know, we have to advise him you're going to m- more likely survive this way it's worth, it's worth more effort okay? but where we don't say that you know. and there are many other circumstances of course where the patient I just want to illustrate one more principle very briefly where the patient gets to choose and that is in the very difficult situation that happens all the time in medicine where a person has a terminal illness, okay, which means that if nothing's done, they'll die within a year, but we can offer them a procedure, which if it it works, will save them, but if it fails, will take away the year they would have had. Do you get it? Here's a person who's got a condition. Normally, they live for six months or nine months but they're guaranteed not to live beyond that it's a well known thing in their particular situation they'll die we say to look we've got an operation I'm not talking about experimental stuff that we'll get to we'll get to a little bit later we say we've got an operation or some radical therapy for like marrow ablation and chemotherapy or some radical option if it works it will save your life in the long term but if it fails you'll die tomorrow morning during the procedure you'll sacrifice the nine months you would have had okay the bottom line ruling I'm not going to go into revocation. we'll do that on another occasion I have discussed it before the bottom line ruling is the patient gets to choose can't, you cannot coerce a patient in a situation. patient gets to choose. What's the correct decision? No, I know what you're going to ask me. What happens if the patient cannot choose? Baruch Hashem, here I can answer you. What do you do if the patient cannot choose? For example, they're unconscious, or they're a child, something like that. The default position in Jewish law is to take a chance. I'm not going to go into derivation now. The normal default is that if it's a question of certain death in the medium term, as opposed to a possibility of short-term death and a possibility of full life, normal life, we take the chance, all else being equal. Generally, that's the default. And incidentally, it's even the default if the survival probability is less than 50% from the procedure. That means if the chances are they'll die tomorrow morning, 60% chance tomorrow morning they'll die from the operation. Only 40% that they'll live. The default Jewish position is, in those circumstances, a 40% chance of living is better than a hundred percent chance of dying in three months or six months or nine less than a year. Not okay, going to go derivation now. It's a fasc- fascinating derivation of Moshe Feinstein talks about it on another occasion. We in this session we'll talk about that, but that's another. So there are many circumstances where choice does apply. This is not because your life is yours, but because in these circumstances the Torah allows the this, yeah, allows the, the authority for you to, to to say what you should do, and therefore, okay. Now let's advance this this uh, one step further. Are there any questions about the the particular elements that we raised? Okay. Just make a a comment in passing for the psychiatrists and that is that the mental status is very important, halachiki. The person's mental status has a real tangible effect in Jewish law. I'll give you one classic application. Here's a beautiful application. Let's say a person is ill, dangerously ill, and they're suffering terribly. And the only way you can relieve their pain is dangerous. Here's a person who's suffering terribly and their breathing is... Iffy. Okay, the breathing is you want to give them a very heavy analgesic medication that will relieve the pain, but it might stop them breathing. Now normally, under normal so first thought, the first thought is you certainly can't do that. Why? Because the, the justification for giving a person something dangerous is only to save their life. We'll do dangerous things to save a life, but yeah, you're not saving a life, you're just relieving a symptom. What right do you have to risk a person's life to make them feel better? Let them suffer. And this has been an age-old medical tradition. It's well known that pain is often inadequately treated. And one of the reasons is people don't want to give the person a risk. Let them rather suffer That I should take a chance of killing them. Okay? In Jewish law, are you allowed to give the person a risk? the risk to their life. Okay? You might suppress the respiration in order to relieve their suffering. Says Rabbi Moshe Feinstein in a, in a, in a classic shiver, you are obliged to give the medicine to relieve their pain. Says Rabbi Moshe, you know why? Not because it's humane. Of course it is, humane. But there's another reason. Because pain is not innocuous. Pain is not just a symptom. Pain, pain, anguish, despair, depression, feeling of hopelessness. These are real things pushing the patient down. Therefore, when you relieve his pain, you're not only being humane, you're also treating the, the problem. Is this clear? It's a beautiful, Any, it's worthy of any good doctor, that halakhic reasoning, and of course that's what we do. Of course, don't, don't get carried away. There are big conditions. When you give pain relief to a person whose life is in danger... Okay. There are a number of conditions. Number one, you have to give it to relieve the pain, not to kill him. The intention has to be to relieve his pain, which means you have to judge exquisitely how much to give that will relieve the pain, accepting a small risk, but no more than is necessary. And that brings me to another point, which is another general principle in Jewish law, which must be stated clearly. There's a principle in halacha, that's written in the Shulchanach, in the code of Jewish law. Listen carefully, you're not going to enjoy this if you're a doctor. well you might, depends on what your position is no doctor is allowed to treat a patient if there's a more competent doctor available to do so you get that? no doctor may treat a patient if there's a better doctor who could be obtained why? because the patient deserves the best in secular medicine we often get a junior person to treat a doctor because the junior needs to learn how to do it and if he's in a public hospital for example well you put up with that, right? so the junior is often doing things, right? I'm not talking about where it's an absolute need. I worked in a hospital in South Africa where, you know, there just weren't enough people and there the motto was see one, do one, teach one. You got to see one of them, then the next one you did yourself and then you're going to teach somebody else. Okay, that's all. Yeah, Now that's a well-known thing. I'm talking about where it's not entirely necessary but you as a junior need the experience so you get to do things. In Jewish law, not only is that wrong from the patient's perspective, we even judge it to be wrong from the trainee's perspective because you're training the trainee wrongly. You're teaching him that the patient doesn't necessarily get the best although in the long term you're training him so that people will get care, but our criterion is the patient... Let me just finish this. Our criterion is the patient gets the best. And therefore, you may not administer therapy to a patient. If there's a better qualified pair of hands around to do so, the patient gets the best. In practice, this doesn't always work. Why? Because when the best doctor around is so fully occupied that he can't deal with anymore, then the second most qualified person is obliged to start operating. Okay? So therefore... In practice, that is what it is, and there are other exceptions. I'll just mention them briefly, where the procedure that's being done is well within the capability of the junior who's doing it. that's a standard procedure that he's capable of doing, where the professor is not going to be better, or he's not going to be better to, again, the junior is doing it fully adequate uh, trained for the, uh, uh, then he's allowed to do it. Thirdly, where the junior is acting under the direct guidance and responsibility of a senior, okay, then it could be but the guarantee, the criterion is, is the patient getting the best? However he's getting it, is he getting the best around? And therefore, in our application of pain relief, it would have to be the most qualified doctor, not some junior giving morphine, which may be dangerous, the most qualified pair of hands, okay, titrating very carefully against the pain against the, the risks, the yeah, therapy against the benefit against the risks, so that the patient is getting the best option of having his pain relief rather than anything. And by the way, sometimes you have to go against convention. I spent time working in, in, for example, in geriatrics, and I noticed in you know, it, it, um, old and debilitated people, I often noticed you know, one of the classic problems in, in that sort of situation is people getting aspiration pneumonia. They can't swallow their food properly. Often inhale some food, they get a terrible pneumonia. It can be a, a, a medical disaster. I realized after I was running that unit for a while that one of the solutions was I observed carefully what was going on in the unit, and I noticed that meal times suddenly struck me one day. was a hospital in Israel private hospital. I suddenly walking around, and I said, what's going on? Here I see my most qualified nurses are giving out medications and completely untrained individuals are feeding the patients. Here they get people who got no training at all, very kind people. They're busy shoveling food into the patient's mouths. Patients who can't swallow properly. Okay? And a highly qualified nurse with many years training is handing out medications. So immediately I reversed the procedure. That was legal. That's what I did. I made the senior nurses feed the patients where real care and skill is needed. And anybody with any intelligence can give out the right medicine. The okay, care after and un- under-, under adequate supervision. And that made a significant difference. Yeah, the yeah, patient needs to get the best that's available under the. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry, someone had a question? Yeah. Um, have anyone um, any not competent doctors or nurses improved? Even if they couldn't, that doesn't justify giving this patient less than he deserves. Do you understand? We don't make trade offs like that. We're not going to make a trade off that in order that we should learn, I need training as a doctor, so now I'm going to disadvantage this person, okay, because I need to learn in the future. That I'm learning wrong. That's not the right way to do it. The practical answer to your I don't know what's bothering you. What's bothering you is practicality, how are people going to learn practically. The answer is under the right circumstances, under guidance. But the guidance has to be that I'm a senior, I'm responsible for you, I'm taking care, I'm making sure that while you get your training, the patient not being disadvantaged, okay? Many advantages are taken on patients. I, I was once teaching in a certain medical school, and I remember a certain case that some of the students came to talk to me. Afterwards, one girl started crying. One medical student started crying. What's the problem? She was in an the operating theater, and they got her to examine patients, female patients, intimately, under anesthetic, without their permission. Why? Because it's very e- when a patient's anesthetized, the muscles are relaxed. You can feel very well. You can feel the ovaries. You can feel everything. Very, very good training. Right? So, it's a wonderful opportunity to examine the patient and teach the student without permission, without the patient's permission, just because they're under anesthetic. You may be te- teaching this uh, medical student how to do the examination, but you're teaching a completely wrong ethical principles. Are you with me? And she was very conflicted about it. That's not the right thing to do. The per- person, That's a place where autonomy certainly counts. Yeah, somebody had another question? Okay, so so of course I'm not talking if you're working in a public hospital where the deal is that patients are examined by students and you walk over as a medical student and say excuse me, I'm so and so, I'm a student do you mind if I examine you? the person says no, ok, with human respect and they say no, and you examine them and you get practice and so forth, there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with that but, but um, provided you, mean you you get sincere permission of course, not, not a patient the person thinks that you know, their treatment will be prejudiced because you, you know they're not cooperating There has to be genuine human, uh, human uh, consent. So, these are, these are some of the things. This leads me to the next principle, which is that the whole idea of treating a person in the first place, you have to understand, is that the treatment doesn't come from us. Uh, let me try and explain this. You see, let, let me try, I'll put it to you, put it you in, this, in this form. No, the Torah says, here's a, here's a very uh, classic way of putting it. The Torah says, V'rapa, V'rapa, you shall certainly heal. There's a mitzvah in the Torah that a doctor should heal. How do you know that you should give medical treatment? How do you know that you're allowed to go for treatment? How do you know that you can give treatment as a doctor? How do you know that you not only can, but must? Okay, there are different opinions about this. There's one opinion, one opinion that the obligation to heal medically is actually learned from the obligation of, learning a, of returning a lost object. The Torah is clear that you have to return a lost object. So the, so the sources say, well, if you have to return him a lost object, you certainly have to return him his life or his health. That's clear. There's other mitzvahs, do not stand idly by while somebody's drowning or dying. There's many, many potential sources. But there's one statement in the Torah that says, Rappi, Rappi, you shall heal. You shall certainly heal. The classic interpretation is, and there are many, not only Jewish, uh, not only Jewish approach, even non-Jewish non-Jew, religions which, which look at it like this. The classic approach is like this. Imagine the Torah had not said that a doctor should heal. You might, ration, you might rationalize and say like this, well if God makes somebody sick, what right do I have to interfere God made somebody sick, right? has a disease that came from, from heaven, right? God wants him to suffer, because he wants him to learn something. Who might interfere? So the Torah says, wrong thinking, verapo you shall heal him. Okay, and no doubt, that is a, no doubt that's a great interpretation. But there's a much more subtle interpretation that I want to mention to you. And it's like this. Listen carefully, it's important. The Torah says you shall heal somebody. The problem is it doesn't tell you what healing. It doesn't tell you which drug. It doesn't tell you which operation or which drug. It says heal. Good. So now I'm a doctor and I go out to heal. The problem is which the Torah doesn't tell me what to do. What do we do? The best opinion, the best available information, the medical training best that I have in my generation, my day. I apply that. But does the Torah mandate that? Let me, let me make it plain. You know, the history of medicine is replete with things that have been tried and declared to be the right standard of care and 10 years later they decide that that's criminal. In fact, I would probably guess that virtually everything in medicine is like that. Probably everything that was done 50 years ago, today we would judge as either ridiculous or a downright criminal. 50 years ago, it was a standard of care. And who knows how they laugh at us in 15 or 20 or 5 years' time. There's virtually nothing in medicine that stays constant, except maybe setting a broken bone. More or less. Probably more or less. You know, or maybe the pulling out a tooth, no? Or, st- or, or sticking it back, maybe. I don't know. But... You know, much of medicine changes all the time. So the problem you have is like this. You go see a doctor, he's going to do something to you. Sure, the Torah tells him to heal, but as it doesn't say use this medicine. What if in five years' time they show that this medicine was harmful? The Torah says, It's not your problem, that's his problem. That's Hashem's problem. Torah, the Torah tells you, your obligation is to go and make yourself available for, and give, that means get, and give, the best healing according to the consensus of best opinion in your generation whether it's genuinely effective or not, is Hashem's problem. Is this clear? Why? Because our attitude is not the little white tablet that helps you anyway. It's God. It's Hashem. The healing doesn't come from the little white tablet. The healing comes from Hashem Himself. The little white tablet is only what's called a shtadlis. You have to make a natural effort. So make a natural effort. what, What is considered standard of natural effort? What's considered right in your time and place. You understand? Therefore, in five years' time, if that changes, what's the difference? So that was a new standard. Hashem is now using a new method to heal people. This goes so far as this. What happens if you use a certain medication and in 10 years time they actually prove that it's harmful and you can actually show that that individual was harmed by that treatment? You know the Jewish attitude is? He had it coming. (laughs) That harm would have accrued some other way. You would not have got out of having a certain suffering okay, by doing an illegitimate technique. Is this this clear? Yeah, I'll give you an example, a practical example. Very briefly, this involves a Kabbalistic idea, so you cannot ask any questions, okay? Mm -hmm. This is Alachik shir, no questions about Kabbalah. But I'll tell you anyway. What happened was, there was a nurse in Israel assisting at an operation. If I'm not mistaken, it was the excision of an ectopic pregnancy. woman had an abnormal pregnancy, and she was in danger, and they were removing the pregnancy. During the operation, the two Israeli gynecologists performing the operation were speaking to each other. They were secular individuals, chelunim. The nurse was a religious girl. The one doctor said to the other one, these foolish religious patients. We told this lady to be sterilized. We told her she was in danger. We told her she gets sterilized. She said it's forbidden. She didn't want to do it. She wants to have more children. We urged her to become sterilized. And because of religious principles, she didn't listen to us. And now look, she's in danger and she's losing one of her fallopian tubes. You see, we are right and the religious are wrong. The nurse didn't know what to answer. On the one hand, she felt what they were saying was wrong. On the other hand, you know, the facts were that this lady was not coming to home. So she wrote a letter to Rav Zilberstein, one of the famous halachic authorities, the grand, he's a son-in-law of Rav Yashiv. What should I have said to them? Rav Yashiv answered her like this, The principle is, you never escape trouble that's coming your way by illegitimate means. That's the spiritual principle. When, God, when Hashem has got you marked out for a certain degree of Tzarus that you need, ducking and dodging illegitimately is not going to get you out of it. And he mentioned the medrash which is very interesting, and I'll share the medrash with you, on condition you ask me no questions about this medrash. <laughs> oh, Undertaken? <laughs> medicine is like this there was a man who wanted to know the language of the birds he wanted to understand the birds so he went to ask King Solomon to teach him the la- Malach, teach me the language Solomon said look it's not legitimate it's not good it's Kabbalistic it's problematic it's this that eventually the man pestered him and he taught him the language of the birds which he should not have, the man should not have learned it but he now knew the language of the birds he went out and he heard the birds saying that all his chickens were going to die so he quickly sold all his chickens and they died and he was very happy then he heard them saying, the birds saying that his house was going to burn down. So he quickly sold off his house and subsequently it burned down. So he says very happy. Then he heard the birds saying that he was going to die. So he ran back to Shlomo Malachi and he said to him, look, what can I do? Shlomo said, you know, there's nothing I can do for you. You see, what happened to you was, there was a gzeri in Shemaim, a heavenly decree against you, and Hashem tried to take it out on your chickens. You ducked out of that. Then Hashem tried to take it out on your house. You ducked out of that. He said, no, there's nothing I can do. Okay, so that's the idea. In other words, the attitude here is you undertake the operation or the therapy that modern medicine okay, de- deems to be standard for you, and Hashem does the healing. Your undertaking the therapy is not because it heals you. It's because you have an obligation to act in a normal fashion. Where does the healing come from? From Hashem. This schizoid approach, this dichotomy we, it's a standard Jewish approach. When you go to make a living, your attitude is, Hashem, I'm making a normal effort to make a living. The salary comes from you. You should never believe that your effort earns the salary. Your effort is what's required. It's called a shodless. You have to all that. But the result that comes from Hashem, no matter how hard you work, you always believe, you have to understand as a Jew, the result is not the result of your work, although your work was necessary. The Rambam says something like this, that a doctor should stand at the bedside, he should take a couple of steps back and say to himself, whatever I do to this patient is going to make no difference. This patient has his own destiny, his own spiritual accounting. Whatever I do here is going to make no difference. If this person is going to die, there's no way I can save him. And then you step forward to the bedside and you deal with the patient as if every breath depends only on you. And the back of your mind, you know that it's all him. The Ramam composed the prayer that a doctor should say, or a patient should say, in any situation of therapy. You take a little tablet, and you say, May it be your will, Hashem. That this therapy I'm about to take, should be a healing for me. You see the beauty of that? You take the tablet, and you say, Hashem, I'm not ignoring medicine, I'm taking the medicine. But may it be your will that it functions. That schizoid approach. I'm doing responsibly, I'm taking the medicine, just like the doctor said. By the way, people great in Torah are meticulous about doing what the doctor says. You know that? In fact, I know I know an individual, uh, two, two examples, as well. I'll tell you one, of Yaakov Kamenetsky, right, the great Torah sage in America, so he's not alive anymore, he once went to a doctor who gave him some advice. The doctor told him a certain kind of diet that he should undertake. He came back sometime later and the doctor saw he was in danger. In danger, the doctor said, what did you do? He said, I followed your advice exactly. The doctor said, I didn't mean you to do that. I always say much more because no one ever listens to me. You understand? He gave him a diet that was extreme. To impress on him how serious it was, Why? Ten times more extreme than it has to be. Because most people don't take the therapy properly. But he was an individual, he did exactly what the doctor said. Because goes, this is in danger. The doctor knows who he was dealing with. He told him what he really meant. You see, a person of Torah responsibility, of Yaakov never forgot that it was Hashem who was healing him. Okay? Nevertheless, he obeyed the instructions. Exactly. That's called the shtudlis. You go for the therapy and do what he says. So, we patients are like that, right? Is that the degree of compliance you get out of your patients? Okay, well, that's a, that's a Torah standard. So, I'll come to your question in a moment. That is, the, that is the thing. There's a full responsibility, and yet knowing that it doesn't come from you, that is the two that we put, that we put together. Um, one final comment here, and then I'll take questions. What is considered standard therapy? What's considered, you have to do a normal effort. What's considered normal? And here we come to alternative therapies. What if you want to undertake homeopathy? Now, homeopathy doesn't make any sense to me. Okay? I mean, I've heard the theory, they've tried to explain it to me, scientifically it makes zero sense to me. But is that relevant? They think that conventional therapies are often negative, and the homeopathy is very effective. I wasn't trained that way, it's not my approach. What's the lachic approach? Listen carefully. The standard is, the standard is what a broad spectrum of society accepts as normal in your generation. Not necessarily what makes scientific sense. There is a criteria of scientific sense. The Ramam says, for example, that things that are schoolers, a scholar means like a mystical sort of a thing that has a mystical effect, that doesn't have a logical, technical explanation, has a secondary place halakhically over things that, the Ramam was a doctor himself, over things that make sense in terms of an organized cogent co- 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 theory. Okay, scientific theory. That, that needs further, much, much further analysis. It's a fascinating issue. However, the basic standard is, notwithstanding that, the basic standard is what is considered broadly acceptable by a consensus of experts and a broad spectrum of people in your time and place. Now, where does that leave us? Conventional Western medicine certainly fits the bill. That doesn't mean it's a a faultless thing. It doesn't mean there's some things that Western medicine is shockingly poor at at treating. Okay, And some things it's, it's very effective at. The issue is, if that is a standard that's accepted and it certainly is, then you're allowed to do it. Most, in fact, yet the, the general halachic attitude is a thing like homeopathy is broadly enough accepted that it's permissible. The fact that I don't understand how it works is not necessarily invalidating In the areas where homeopathy is understood to be, to be effective, and a homeopath will sometimes send you for surgery, because okay, he thinks that it was needed there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in an area where his teaching is that this is effective. A broad enough spectrum of people. Do you know the percentage of people who go to alternative therapies today? Extremely high. In studies in America, it's been shown that somewhere around 50%, if not more, undertake either exclusively or also alternative therapies. If it's a broadly enough accepted... Alternative therapy in your generation, it could be halakhically acceptable. Okay, now I'm not going to get into a debate about which ones. Okay, is Haiti and voodoo medicine like broadly enough accepted? It is in Haiti, like you know, but is it in London? I don't know. When you get into the individual things, you know how many alternative therapies there are—hundreds and hundreds of alternative therapies. That becomes a question of: is this broadly enough accepted in your day and age? That will make it. A, but the the basic bottom line is: is this a standard accepted therapy? Or is it validated by consensus of experts in that field? That is what you need halakhiki. Then you take the therapy, understanding that the healing comes from someplace else. What's your? um, so that means, um and that um, and sort of that you it like, what if, if you're like you to everything with your power into the same life? Why is it bad to if, if you've been told that if you move house into the same life, then why is that bad? You have to do everything you can to save a life. What's the problem? We're ma- we about. Right? Yeah. If we're destined to, to die, then we Yeah, destiny may not be exactly the right word. But in the doctor's the attitude is this person's got his own spiritual dispensation, okay? Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, when I act, I act as if he depends on me. If I'm a doctor, I have to act. If I'm doing a job, I'm your plumber. I'm doing some engineering work for you. I don't say, well, look, God's taking care of this. He's not, right now. I'm taking care of it. You understand? Whether I will be given the merit to be successful, that's in his hands. But I act as if it depends on me. That's full degree of responsibility. How mystically the two go together, I'm not going to explain. There are different balances. In earning a living, for example, we have one notion of the balance. In getting married, we have a slightly different one. Getting married, you're allowed to make less effort than in earning a living. In trust Hashem more when it comes to meeting the right person. Okay, these are different. There are different balances here. What is considered the right Ishtadlis in different areas? In medicine, the shdalus is in the present day and age. Not talking in a prophetic day and age. In a prophet's time, you didn't go to a doctor. You went to a prophet, and he told you what the spiritual cause of the illness was, and you dealt with that. And it was considered negligent to go to a doctor. The, the Torah says that King Asa died because he went to doctors, instead of to prophets. But we don't have prophets anymore. Okay, so today. The balance is shifted to, to the extent that we undertake a normal thing. I'd like to just mention one more, one more area, um, unless you have any questions that relate to others. And that is just briefly, I'd like to relate to experimental medicine. Okay? What happens when something is not part of the consensus of your generation? It's experimental. They want to give you a drug that's never been tried before, or very seldom tried before, or some operation that somebody's dreamed up that he thinks is going to help you in your circumstances. Okay? This really requires full discussion. But I'd like to mention just one or two of the criteria. One or two criteria are, first of all, first of all practical criteria. Yeah? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but practically. Has the homework been done? Let's say you want to do a dangerous intervention on a human being, what in technical jargon they call Go Human. Somebody's got some device or some medicine, they've been testing it on animals, which is another issue. Can you test things on animals? We have to discuss that as well. And now, they've done all the lab work, and they've done all the technical work, all the theoretical work, and they want to what's called Go Human. At which stage can you cross over into a human trial, or use your therapy in a human uh, victim, volunteer, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call him? The answer is that first of all, has all the homework been done? You've got no right to endanger a human when you could have got more information, okay, in a non-human situation. That's from find Feinstein. That's a very practical thing. You know, what has it been going human? I'll give you an example. A few years ago, in New York, a Jewish engineer, biomechanical engineer, developed the first implantable defibrillator. You know, you know that often pacemakers are put in the heart, right? <coughs> in other words, a wire is threaded through the vein into the heart muscle, and it's attached to a little pacemaker which paces the heart. The modern ones are demand pacemakers. That means when the heart beats abnormally, it senses the abnormal heartbeat, and will correct the heartbeat, or speed it up, or provide an override so the heart beats normally. What happens if the heart does not respond to this pacer? Okay, the heart stops, for example, or goes into fibrillation, and the pacing is ineffective. <coughs> Then, very often, the only hope you have of saving the person's life is to give a massive shock across the chest, okay, called defibrillation, put these massive paddles onto the chest, you give a very large current through the chest, and it will get to the heart muscle, and very often, done correctly, it can be very effective. it's a big move, but if you're aware of this, to have automatic lay people's defibrillation. you know that? A big study was done a couple of years ago in Las Vegas where heart attacks are apparently, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, happen. And they had, they trained the security guards, okay, they trained the security guards to use these automatic defibrillators. You don't need to be a doctor, you just need to put the paddles on and it automatically senses the rhythm and if appropriate gives a shock. The reason they used security guards was because in Las Vegas in the casinos, the guards are positioned so carefully that they can see every inch of the casino so that nobody will see a person collapse before one of the security guards. You understand? So they took the security guards, they trained them how to use these defibrillators, which is very simple, knowing that they're always positioned in such a way that if anyone collapses at any machine, okay, there's no place that's not covered by a security guard's vision, and he'll get to immediately. Within seconds, I give a defibrillation, which is the ideal situation. And today, on planes, and in airports, and in many places, they have defibrillators on the wall. What happens if... So now, what happens if like this? Let's say this person has a heart problem, that needs defibrillation. Well, you can't walk around them. You know, you're going to get the security guard or paramedic to walk around them with the paddles. You know, it gets a little awkward. So this engineer decided he'd invent a defibrillator, a pacemaker that has a built-in defibrillator. In other words, it packs enough of a charge that if the heart is not doing what it's supposed to do, this thing gives a massive shock inside the chest. Of course, you need less charge into the heart than you do across the chest. But nevertheless, it's still a massive shock in the hope that it will then save this person's life. Clear? Would you like to be the first person that they put this thing into that's ready to kick with a tremendous voltage? You, you know, picture the scene. You're out on a very promising shidduch, right? <laughs> you lean, you know, you have this thing implanted. You lean across the table and say, say you know, like romantic kind of, uh, you know, uh, sweet nothing. And suddenly your heart does a little abnormal kind of a thing, and this thing goes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that is. In the medical jargon, we say oishiruch, right? That is the, <laughs> that's the terminology. So, like, how do you decide whether you go human with a scenario, right? So, Rav said, number one, number one, the homework has to have been done. Number two, there has to be a consensus of expert opinion that it's worth the risk in this situation. L- just let's get this clear. What's the problem here? The problem is that a person wants to undertake therapy that has got no halachic justification. Why? It's not a broadly accepted parameter. It's not a broadly accepted treatment modality. You're allowed to undertake a therapy, whether, whether it's helpful or not, if it's accepted as the norm in your time and age, day and age. But you're talking about an experimental thing which no one has yet established as valid. No one, it's not, not got a broad body of people who subscribe to that therapy. So therefore, does it fulfill the criterion okay, of being the standard in your day? It doesn't. Therefore, who says Hashem is going to back it up? Do you see the difficulty? You are required to undertake a standard therapy. That's the criteria. It's called the Stadler's. But does the Stadler's extend to something that's never been used, that doesn't have that body of evidence behind? And the answer is, you don't have to. You do not have to undertake an experimental therapy. All you have to undertake is the best standard of care in your age. You're not required to go and do something extreme and experimental because you're not required to do that. May you do it, the answer is, if you're in danger, and if a consensus of experts agree that's a reasonable thing to do in these circumstances, even if it's never been tried, then you may undertake the experimental therapy. So, you have to understand, there's a fundamental difference in an experimental procedure, yes, than there is with a standard procedure. Not only because it's known and not known, but because halakhically, from a Torah hashkafa point of view, from a Torah attitude point of view, they're very different. That standard procedure, Hashem backs up, as it were, because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. The experimental procedure does not have that standard behind it. And therefore, the standard there, the concept there, is not that it's broadly accepted. On the contrary, the standard there is if there's no other hope and an expert uh, opinion is that it's a reasonable thing to do and the benefits outweigh the risk, etc., 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 and the person agrees, then that could be room for an experimental treatment modality. That's just the beginning of scratching the surface of experimental surgery, experimental medicine. And I'm going to stop here for questions because it's late. If there are any questions on what we discussed, I'll try to answer them and uh, we'll continue with other subjects the next time yeah, please if God has uh, supreme power over our lives if he determines who, who shall live and who shall die on Rosh Hashanah then surely it doesn't really make any difference what we do. You don't know that, right? You don't know what he's decided for you. No, you don't know. But at the end of the day, he has the final word, whatever you do. That's true. So I see a conflict here. You're right. If you believe 100% in God's ability to keep you alive or destroy you, why do anything? Because he commands you to, right? He says, I'm in charge of your life, and I know whether you're going to die this year or not. You've got medical obligations. For now, let's leave it at that. It's a mystical subject, this. Okay, we'll stop here this evening because it's late.